Good morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible open, please please open it to that passage in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. It's a heavy passage, isn't it, that we're dealing with today in our, in our series through Mark. And it's the kind of passage that we need to actually think about with some regularity as believers, isn't it? Because it gives us uh, a really crystal clear insight into what it means to be a Christian, the fundamentals of what it actually means to be a Christian. And Amazingly, you can sort of lose sight of that um, quite easily. But the risk when, uh, when I am teaching on a passage like this and when you're hearing a passage taught like this, the risk is that we will stop short of actually applying these words in the way that the Lord wants us to. The risk uh, really for, for someone like me in this situation as I teach you is to think that I've succeeded in my job simply if I make you feel bad. But make you feel guilty. And as listeners to the word, when we hear a word like this, we can feel like we've succeeded if we feel guilty. If we can say after the service, that was a hard word, that was a convicting word. But it's not mere remorse that God is after for us, is it? I mean, it's not mere tears, it's not mere sadness or guilt. But what the Lord wants for us is repentance and transformation. And uh, Sean alluded uh, just before to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about Jesus giving gifts to the church. Uh, and in that passage it says that he gives teachers to the church for what purpose? Uh, it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is to say, Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings, are not to break us down, are not to make us feel guilty and remorseful. Jesus' words are actually to build us up as the church and to transform us into his likeness. And so please don't stop short of that today and recognize even in hard words like this, Jesus' intention for us is to build us up. But hard words they are. In, in the path, uh, if we want to continue that analogy today, we actually we, we hit some amazing peaks in our path. We climbed some great mountains, both um, literally and metaphorically. But we also find ourselves in some very dark valleys in this passage, and they're all smooshed together quite deliberately here. But both of them are for our good. So let's dive into the passage, and I want to take a look at it in three, uh, three parts here. Uh, firstly, I want to have a look at the cross of Christ. Secondly, the cross of the Christian. And then I want to spend a little bit of time discussing how all of this fits with that core uh, gospel message of our faith, that we are saved by grace and through faith. So, firstly, the cross of Christ. Verse 27 there, Jesus, on his way up to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, starts to ask his disciples who people think that he is. And just like today, everyone has their opinion of who Christ is. They all think he's someone special. They all think he's one of the prophets. But Jesus then immediately personalizes the question, doesn't he? And it's a question, you know, it's, it's very easy to give you two cents about what people think about a subject. But when, when someone asks you directly, no, but what do you think? Uh, and especially, you know, Christ himself asking Peter, uh, asking the disciples, who do you think that I am? It's a very personal question and it's calling them to get off the fence themselves. And Peter amazingly looks him in the eye and says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. That's a, a phrase that can easily uh, pass us by because we know that Jesus is the Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. We know that. 
But actually, in the Gospel of Mark, this title, Christ or Messiah, has not been attributed to Christ at all. No one has called Jesus the Christ yet. No one has called him the Messiah. This is the first time. And it's almost like in, in Jesus asking the disciples directly, it sort of brings it out of Peter, something that he's, he's sort of already recognized internally and now is voicing for the first time. You're the guy. And it's an amazing statement because whereas what the other people are saying about Jesus being one of the prophets, you know, that's, that's a group of extraordinary men, but it is a group. There are a number of prophets. There are many prophets. There's only one Christ. There's only one Messiah. And so Peter is saying, you are actually the one for whom history has waited. You are the one that the prophets prophesied. You're the guy. And the expectations of who the Christ was were massive at this time, that Christ is actually, he's the son of David. He's the rightful king of the Jews, the king of the world. And he's the one who is going to deliver them from their oppression. It's an amazing thing for Peter to say to this Jewish rabbi and carpenter. And Jesus becomes instantly nervous about that statement, although it is true. Verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus uh, recognized, as we're going to see, that even though the disciples had um, correctly identified him as the Messiah, they only actually knew half of what that meant. They only knew half of what it meant to be the Messiah, and Jesus is going to fill them in. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the other side of what it means to be the Messiah. And here Jesus is teaching the disciples something that would have been, and as we will see, was impossible for them to grasp. Because he was marrying together um, two Old Testament prophesied figures that seemed like complete opposites. On the one hand, there's this Messiah, this king who is to come, who is prophesied in passages like Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, this coming conquering king. But then on the other hand, there was another figure that was prophesied in the Old Testament uh, in passages like Isaiah 53, this suffering servant. Isaiah says of him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, you can't get two more opposite pictures than those, can you? On the one hand, a king who will actually be ruler over the peoples, to whom all people will bring tribute. On the other hand, a suffering servant who is despised and rejected by all people. There aren't two more opposite figures than that. And yet Jesus here is actually saying to the, to the disciples, both of those people are actually one person, and they're both me. I'm standing right in front of you, and both of those things apply to me. And th that then, that dual vocation, if you like, of Jesus, that, that twin calling of Jesus to be on the one hand this triumphant king and on the other hand this suffering servant, this is actually the, the core of the glory and the beauty of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, 
the Apostle John is standing uh, in the throne room of God and someone describes for him Jesus. And he says, he calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who has overcome. And he points to Jesus and then it says, when John turned to look at this uh, image, to look at Jesus, he didn't see a lion at all, did he? He said, I saw one standing like a lamb who had been slain. Jesus is this lion-like lamb, this lamb-like lion. It's what uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, called the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. That's a word you could, phrase you can think about for a while, isn't it? That we admire Jesus because he pulls together two glorious images in one human being and in one God-man. That on the one hand, he is this triumphant lion, who protects us, who delivers us. On the other hand, he is this suffering servant who submits to everything to be the perfect sacrifice for us. So it's understandable that Peter can't understand any of this. And bizarrely, after making this great confession of who Jesus is, for the first time, rebukes Jesus. And Jesus, uh, and, and saying, this, this won't happen to you. This can't happen to you. Uh, and Jesus then instantly turns and rebukes Peter. And these are sobering words for us to take to heart ourselves. It says, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's a sobering statement because it tells us that in advising other people uh, or in advising ourselves, um, of a course of action based on merely human concerns, we might actually be unwittingly doing the devil's work. You see that for here, for Peter, this is just common sense. Jesus, you're the Christ, you're not going to suffer. And Jesus says, that's actually the devil's work because you're only thinking about the human side of the equation. I think that we can actually do that a lot in our own thinking about our own future and the decisions that we should make and in advising other people we can actually conflate human concerns and divine concerns. We can say, for example, oh, God has opened a door for me to do this thing because circumstances have fallen into line, because things are looking smooth uh, toward that end. And it's true that that does happen, and Jesus does lead us that way because he is merciful. You know? The psalmist says God uh, leads us beside still waters. Sometimes the things do just fall into place, and that is God's leading. But it's equally true that God sometimes leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Sometimes he points to the really hard place where the circumstances are not falling into place at all, where opportunities are not being given. He says, go there. And we need to be attentive to his voice uh, in that way as well. So that's the cross of Christ, now the cross of the Christian. And I think uh, Dad's picture here with the kids was so on point. Um, because what we're going to see next in the passage is that just as Christ's life, as he could see, clearly led toward the cross, so uh, while we're you know, living our own lives, we can do our own thing and, and our lives will look unique to us. But as soon as we join up with Christ's path, our life goes to the cross as well. And that's what we're going to see here. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
You understand? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. It's uh, important that the group that he's addressing here, it says that he called his disciples to himself, did you see there at the start of verse 34, with the crowd. He's got his inner ring who know him and who have sort of pledged themselves to walk with him and the crowd who are watching on, prospective disciples. And he says to both of these groups that they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. So that we can't say if we're young believers or new believers or prospective believers, you know, um, maybe all of that take up the cross stuff, that's down the track, that's a next level Christianity. No, Jesus says actually that's entry level Christianity is the cross. But then on the other side, if we've been disciples of Christ for 30, 40, 50 years, we can't just say that all of that's in the rearview mirror. And, you know, I, I made those sacrifices on the front end when I first became a believer, and now life is, is a little bit more easy. It's for that reason that in Luke's account of this same passage, Jesus says, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's an everyday activity, morning by morning, going, I've got to do it again, whether we're a year in the faith or 50 years in the faith. So he says, firstly, deny yourself. These are huge commands, aren't they? We shouldn't take them lightly. We're, we're not to deny a part of ourselves only, a sinful part of ourselves, or deny certain things to ourselves. I better not do that, I better not do this. But Jesus actually tells us to deny the self itself, the whole self. One of the commentators I read um, pointed out that you know, this word deny is used famously of Peter later on when he denies Jesus three times. And in that case, what does Peter say uh, to the servant girl who asks him? He says, I don't know the man. And the commentator said, that's what Jesus is telling us to do to ourselves. We're supposed to say, I don't know the man. I don't regard this man. Really what Jesus is getting at here is that we are to discount our natural inclinations. We are to discount what our self naturally wants. That's true of the big decisions in life. Um, big decisions that we make around, will I marry, won't I marry, will I have a family, not, will I, where, will I, where will I move, what kind of house will I live in, so on. But I want to say it's even more importantly true of the mundane decisions that we make every day. Every day is made up of dozens and dozens of decisions that actually together form the substance of our lives. Decisions like, you know, will I scroll the Facebook feed this morning or will I search the scriptures? Will I, will I pray or will I play? Will I serve my wife or my husband or will I wait for them to serve me? Will I work diligently or will I cut some corners? Will I listen to the person in front of me attentively or will I speak incessantly? Will I stew on wrongs done to me and gossip about them or will I just forgive the person who's done it, bless them and go on my way? Will I, as I approach a homeless man, will I engage him and speak to him and speak life to him or will I pass him by because I've got other things to do? Will I give generously or will I conserve for myself? All of these sorts of decisions we make every day and in each of these decisions there is what the self wants and there is what Christ wants and the two very rarely agree with each other. So Jesus is saying deny yourself and don't just deny yourself for its own sake as if it's virtuous simply to make sacrifices, simply to deny things to yourself, as someone might do at Lent. I'm not having chocolate for Lent, and that's a good thing. We're actually to deny ourselves, Jesus says, in order to follow him. 
trusting that where he leads is where we want to go. And between those two commands then is the big one. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. What Jesus is saying in this expression is that we are to accept in advance the cost of following him. Right at the beginning, we are to accept all the cost of following him. That cost expresses itself in the two things that the cross symbolizes. The cross is a symbol, firstly, of death. Uh, It was an instrument, of course, of, of execution. And Jesus touches on that in verse 35, this language of death. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Uh, The word soul and the word life there are the same word in the original. It's the whole person and it's the whole life. And Jesus says you have to lose your life in order to gain it. Now for the early disciples, that was very literal, right? Almost all of them lost their lives, biological lives, for uh, their obedience to Christ. Some of them were crucified like Christ. Um, And that's true then, firstly, for all of us as well. In every generation, every disciple of Christ, and this is actually unlike a lot of other religious belief systems, other belief systems, uh, Islam, I believe, and and the Baha'i faith, there are a few others that say, you can actually deny your faith if it will cost you your life, because your life is more important. But Christ says, no, I take your life as well. When it comes to that point, all of us in every age need to say, no, we will give our physical life for Christ. But then short of that literal giving of our lives are many metaphorical deaths that we must face as believers, aren't there? You might find that um, you become dead to certain family members of yours who don't want to speak to you anymore or speak to you in the same way because you're a believer. Or you might find yourself dead to certain friendship groups with whom you can no longer join the same old activities that you used to engage in. Or you might find your career dead. And this, I think, is becoming an increasing issue, and it might be right at the door for some of us, that as we uh, commit ourselves to faithfulness to Christ in the workplace, that we might actually find that we have to say, the career is dead uh, because of our unwillingness to go along with ungodliness in that context. So all that to say, uh, death is, uh, is to be expected for the Christian. And that's a very countercultural thing, isn't it? Because in our culture, uh, actually everything is about uh, flourishing, human flourishing. And that's what the emphasis is on, that the decisions that you make in your life should lead to your flourishing. And if they lead to your harm, or if they lead to personal destruction, that's actually a bad thing. We talk about taking me time and self-care and putting away toxic people. But Jesus, in response to that, is actually saying, no, first you die. First you actually do. You are destroyed. And then you live. And so we should expect that Christianity will be harmful for us at times. But it's harmful for us in the same way that surgery is harmful to us, right? It's harmful in the short term. And then it is blessing and life in the long term. As Sam Albury puts it, There is going to be a time in your discipleship when it feels like Jesus is killing you. And on the basis of this passage, that's exactly what we should expect. So firstly, the the cross is an instrument of death. Secondly, it's a symbol of shame. Uh, This is something that we don't probably talk about enough about what the cross means. 
but um, those who were crucified very often were crucified naked. And they were crucified in view of all, right? They were lifted up on this cross. And in uh, verse 38 uh, then, Jesus touches on this theme of shame. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus presents in this passage, if you like, two audiences that we live our lives in front of. On the one hand, here on this earth, we live in an adulterous and sinful generation uh, who doesn't, doesn't know what is right and what is wrong. And on the other hand, we live our lives in the view of this holy God, surrounded by holy angels, with Christ you know, bearing witness about us to him. And Jesus says amazingly that if you want applause from one of these audiences, you will get ridiculed from the other one. If you want praise from God, you will be ridiculed by the world. And if you want praise from the world, tragically, you will experience shame before God. And so we need to, as Christians, surrender our right to reputation in this world, right? It's time for us to dispense with the old questions that we are tempted to ask. How can I share the good news with my friend without seeming weird? You know? How can I be a Christian and not be a weird, you know, stand out and be strange? This, this passage puts that to death. You can't. You will be shamed by the world. And do you notice then, and this is really important, that Jesus doesn't separate himself from his words in this regard. Have a look again at verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, for his personal sake and for the gospel that he preaches. Or verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The person of Jesus and the words of Jesus are one. The reason that that is important in our own context is that our generation is actually fine with Jesus for the most part. If you talk about Jesus, most people, you know, like the crowds of this day, think of him as someone important, not the son of God, but someone important. But if you start speaking like Jesus, or even just quoting the words of Jesus, there will be plenty of shame, right? If you say to people, for example, you must be born again, or if you say, uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Or if you say, as Jesus says here, that this is an adulterous and sinful generation, there will be shame at that point where you speak the words of Christ. So we could choose to be Christians without the cross in this generation. All we would have to do is shut up about what Jesus said. But as soon as we speak the words of Jesus, there will be shame. So faithfulness to Christ for us means not just embracing Christ, but embracing and repeating and quoting and standing by his words publicly. Even when the world calls these hateful words. How are we to do that? How are we to cultivate a sort of shamelessness in the words of Christ? I think two things, not exhaustive. One of them you won't be surprised by me saying. The first is meditate on the words of Christ. We are hearing words from the world all day, every day, all week, every week. And there's a certain logic to them that can sort of get in your head. And if you're not meditating on the words of Christ equally or more, you actually don't stand a chance of thinking that the words of Christ make any sense at all. 
Secondly, we just need to say them. <laughs> we just need to speak them, open our mouths and just say them. Because there are promises in the scripture for a great blessing from God in the moment of our persecution and not before. So 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And you only get that feeling of the spirit of, and the glory of God resting upon you when you're actually experiencing that shame. So you've got to put the words out there first. Experience the shame and trust God that he will bless you. And I can testify, and I'm sure many of you can as well, that in those moments where you experience shame from the world, and it could be something as minor as a sort of roll of the eyes to as extreme as something more aggressive and a, a kind of argument that ensues, in that moment, strangely, doesn't there come upon you this feeling of, of blessing, of going, I'm actually in the will of God here. I'm suffering for the name of Christ here. So to summarize Jesus' teaching for us as Christians here, all of us who want to follow Jesus at any stage must deny our natural inclinations, voluntarily accept death and ridicule in advance, and shamelessly walk and talk as Jesus does. So finally, passages like this always have me asking the question, maybe for some of you as well, how does all of this, this great call, this great cost of discipleship, how does it fit with the simple message that we were singing about before? That we're actually saved by great, this grace of God that flows over us and faith in Christ. And it's as simple as that. Well, I want to say firstly that while there are two crosses in this passage, only one of them saves you. Right? There's our cross, there's Christ's cross, and only Jesus went to the cross for our sins. We don't go to the cross for our sins. We don't carry our cross to, as, uh, as penance for our sins. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and then we, united to Christ, our, our lives start to conform to that pattern, and we find in our lives this, this pattern of death and of resurrection. And as we go along the way and we fail to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him, as in, inevitably we will do, as inevitably there will be days in which we face that, we draw forgiveness, not from the fact that we will do better tomorrow, but from that once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made on his own cross. As Peter found, right, this disciple Peter, in just a few short chapters, will not deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus, but actually he will deny Jesus and he will refuse the cross and he will actually keep his distance from his Lord. And Jesus will restore him. And forgive him. And he will serve then as an example to all of us that there is endless forgiveness in the cross of Christ for our own failures to take up our cross. But I want to say, secondly, then, actually, it's only simple faith in Christ that can produce this kind of faithfulness to Christ. I learned this recently in Hebrews chapter 11. Who can tell me in one word what the topic of Hebrews chapter 11 is? Faith? Faith. We're all agreed. Faith. But what are the stories in Hebrews 11? What kind of, what kind of stories does, that, uh, does that, book, uh, that chapter tell us? Sorry? People cut in two, that's right. People experiencing pain. People uh, actually, you know, Abraham setting out from his own homeland. You know, uh, Cain being killed by his, uh, Abel being killed by his brother because of his superior sacrifice. 
Noah building this ark. You know, these are stories actually of people, Old Testament people, uh, denying themselves, taking up their cross and following Jesus. And the crescendo of that passage comes in Hebrews 12, where it gives us the object, the ultimate object of our faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. How? By looking to ourselves? By figuring out how we can do better? No, but by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it is faith, actually, simple faith, that causes us to live this life of faithfulness. And I think that's why then we end this passage with that glorious account of the transfiguration. These disciples who have just been told that their Lord will suffer extraordinarily and die and that they themselves must embrace the same fate are now given a foretaste of the glory that is on the other side. They will see up on that mountain... Um, the face of Jesus, which shortly will be marred beyond human likeness, but by the beating that he receives, they will see that face shining like the sun. And they will see uh, Jesus' uh, body that will be defiled uh, by the Roman uh, centurions just shortly. They will see on that mountain pure robes on this Jesus. And importantly, Jesus, who will very shortly be rejected by all of the powers that be of his day, and shamed by them, they see up on that mountain, actually Jesus endorsed by Elijah and Moses and by God himself, who says, this is my beloved son. And so this glorious vision of the resurrected Christ is what will sustain them in their own uh, costly discipleship. And it's amazing uh, how Peter responds to all of this. Verse five, Peter sees this amazing vision Verse 5 of chapter 9. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. His response is so typically human. I'm here seeing this amazing sight of Christ. Now what, what must I be here for? What does he want me to do? I, I guess I'll make some tents for these guys, right? And that's what we're tempted to do as well. We see this glorious vision of Jesus and we say, now what do, what do I have to do? And the, the, the um, picture actually and the command of what he has to do is very simple and it's given by God himself. You see there in uh, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's it. That's what we do. Like Hebrews 12, look to Jesus, listen to Jesus. And as we look in true faith to this glorious Christ, this conquering lion, this uh, sacrificial lamb, we will find ourselves actually desiring, in the words of Paul, to know this Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, this is heavy stuff. I wonder, we haven't had sort of audience participation for a while. I wonder if for two, three minutes, rather than me praying for all of us, you just pray for the person next to you. It's okay if it's your wife or your husband or your family. You don't need to do anything difficult or get out of your seat. If you see someone alone, maybe go over to them and pray. But just pray this over them. 
we really need the Spirit of God. We need the power of God to live this out. So would you just pray for two, three, four minutes for the person next to you that they would have the faith to take up their cross, deny themselves and follow Christ?